Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. So today, we are focusing on President Reagan's second address to the UN, delivered in September 1983, 40 years ago. Why, you ask, this specific address? Well, two things to consider here. First, the history of President Reagan's opinion and his relationship with the UN. And secondly, the heated events of 1983, which led to this historic moment. So let's address the first issue, the president's opinion of the UN. Well, when the UN was formed in the lingering glow of U.S.-Soviet alliance in World War II, Reagan was an ardent UN supporter. Most war-weary Americans embraced the United Nations' lofty goals of worldwide peace. But this optimism faded rapidly during the Cold War. When Soviet vetoes in the Security Council demonstrated the organization's limited ability to resolve disputes, when the superpowers differed. U.S. hopes were rekindled briefly in the 50s when the U.N. gave moral and military support to U.S. resistance of the invasion of South Korea. This at a time when the Soviets were boycotting the world body. The Korean police action, so to speak, ultimately led to a Chinese intervention and a long and bloody war. It also led to American disillusionment with the war and the United Nations, sentiments shared by Reagan. By 1965, Governor Reagan commented, We cannot safely rest the case of freedom with the United Nations as it is presently constructed. Not until reconstruction of this organization puts realistic power into the hands of those nations which must, through size and strength, be ultimately responsible for world order, can we submit questions affecting our national interests to the UN and be confident of a fair hearing. Then in 1982, in his first speech to the United Nations, President Reagan gave the most harshly worded address ever delivered to the world body by an American president. He accused the Soviets of tyranny, aggression, atrocities, and ruthless repression, and urged Soviet acceptance of a U.S. agenda for peace. Let's listen. In the nuclear era, the major powers bear a special responsibility to ease these sources of conflict and to refrain from aggression. And that's why we're so deeply concerned by Soviet conduct. Since World War II, the record of tyranny has included Soviet violation of the Yalta agreements leading to domination of Eastern Europe, symbolized by the Berlin Wall, a grim gray monument to repression that I visited just a week ago. It includes the takeovers of Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Afghanistan, and the ruthless repression of the proud people of Poland. Soviet-sponsored guerrillas and terrorists are at work in Central and South America, in Africa, the Middle East, in the Caribbean and in Europe, violating human rights and unnerving the world with violence. Communist atrocities in Southeast Asia, Afghanistan, and elsewhere continue to shock the free world as refugees escape to tell of their horror. The decade of so-called detente witnessed the most massive Soviet buildup of military power in history. They increased their defense spending by 40 percent 
while American defense actually declined in the same real terms. Soviet aggression and support for violence around the world have eroded the confidence needed for arms negotiations. While we exercised unilateral restraint, they forged ahead and today possess nuclear and conventional forces far in excess of an adequate deterrent capability. Now, 15 months later, President Reagan stood before the UN with an expanded agenda. Recall, in March of 1983, just six months before speaking at the UN, he delivered what has become known as his Evil Empire speech. In the same month, he rolled out his strategic defense initiative, known as Star Wars, and saber-rattling began to escalate between the world powers. Soviet leader Andropov accused Reagan of attempting to disarm the Soviet Union in the face of U.S. nuclear threat. In November of 1983, the U.S. and NATO allies planned to execute Exercise Able Archer, which tested communications and command procedures for using nuclear weapons in case of war. Now, this exercise had been routinely carried out for many years and was actually scaled back because of Soviet concerns. Also in 1983, the West Germans had approved the deployment of U.S. Pershing II and cruise missiles. By then, the Soviet press was comparing Ronald Reagan to Adolf Hitler. And then on September 1, 1983, Korean Airlines Jumbo Jet, with 269 people aboard, including 61 Americans, wandered into Soviet airspace and was shot down by a Soviet fighter. The president denounced the act as a crime against humanity. So things were getting a little hot in this Cold War. On September 26th, just a little over three weeks after the attack, President Reagan flew to New York to address the UN in a speech intended to temper anti-Soviet rhetoric with a bid to break the stalemate in arms control talks. Now, no ranking Soviet leader was present to hear Reagan's speech, even though Gromyko, the Soviet foreign minister, had been scheduled to speak. Turns out New York Governor Mario Cuomo and New Jersey Governor Tom Keene denied permission for Soviet planes to land at civilian airports in either state after the KAL shooting. So Gromyko canceled his appearance. The U.S. offered to let Gromyko land at a military base, and they even joked that we won't even shoot down your airplane if it strays from its designated path. But Gromyko didn't take him up on the offer. He just didn't come. But I've come today to renew my nation's commitment to peace. And I have come to discuss how we can keep faith with the dreams that created this organization. The United Nations was founded in the aftermath of World War II to protect future generations from the scourge of war, to promote political self-determination and global prosperity, and to strengthen the bonds of civility among nations. The founders sought to replace a world at war with a world of civilized order. They hoped that a world of relentless conflict would give way to a new era one where freedom from violence prevailed. Whatever challenges the world was bound to face, the founders intended this body to stand for certain values, even if they could not be enforced, and to condemn violence, even if it could not be stopped. This body was to speak with the voice of moral authority, 
That was to be its greatest power. But the awful truth is that the use of violence for political gain has become more, not less, widespread in the last decade. Events of recent weeks have presented new, unwelcome evidence of brutal disregard for life and truth. They have offered an unwanted testimony on how divided and dangerous our world is, how quick the recourse to violence. What has happened to the dreams of the UN's founders? What has happened to the spirit which created the United Nations? From this point, the president makes it clear that as unforgivable as the KAL incident was, he won't let it stand in the way of what he sees as essential foreign policy objectives, peace and arms control. The answer is clear. Governments got in the way of the dreams of the people. Dreams became issues of East versus West. Hopes became political rhetoric. Progress became a search for power and domination. Somewhere the truth was lost that people don't make wars, governments do. And today in Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, and the North Pacific, the weapons of war shatter the security of the peoples who live there, endanger the peace of neighbors, and create ever more arenas of confrontation between the great powers. During the past year alone, violent conflicts have occurred in the hills around Beirut, the deserts of Chad, and the Western Sahara, in the mountains of El Salvador, the streets of Suriname, the cities and countryside of Afghanistan, the borders of Kampuchea, and the battlefields of Iran and Iraq. We cannot count on the instinct for survival to protect us against war. Despite all the wasted lives and hopes that war produces, it has remained a regular, if horribly costly, means by which nations have sought to settle their disputes or advance their goals. And the progress in weapons technology has far outstripped the progress toward peace. In modern times, a new, more terrifying element has entered into the calculations, nuclear weapons. A nuclear war cannot be won, and it must never be fought. I believe that if governments are determined to deter and prevent war, there will not be war. Nothing is more in keeping with the spirit of the United Nations Charter than arms control. When I spoke before the second special session on disarmament, I affirmed the United States government's commitment and my personal commitment to reduce nuclear arms and to negotiate in good faith toward that end. Today, I reaffirm those commitments. The United States has already reduced the number of its nuclear weapons worldwide and while replacement of older weapons is unavoidable, we wish to negotiate arms reductions and to achieve significant, equitable, verifiable arms control agreements. And let me add, we must ensure that world security is not undermined by the further spread of nuclear weapons. Nuclear non-proliferation must not be the forgotten element of the world's arms control agenda. More about this historic speech and the president's commentary on KAL 007 right after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him 
with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the story. At the time, after the shooting down of KAL-007, the general belief was that with this one rash act, the Soviets threw away several years' worth of effort through the European peace movement to split the NATO alliance and prevent Euro-missile deployment. The Soviets' uncompromising reaction further isolated the Europeans. So let's listen to how our 40th president appealed to the world body. Reactions to the Korean airliner tragedy are a timely reminder of just how different the Soviets' concept of truth and international cooperation is from that of the rest of the world. Evidence abounds that we cannot simply assume that agreements negotiated with the Soviet Union will be fulfilled. We negotiated the Helsinki Final Act, but the promised freedoms have not been provided and those in the Soviet Union who sought to monitor their fulfillment languish in prison. We negotiated a biological weapons convention, but deadly yellow rain and other toxic agents fall on Hmong villages and Afghan encampments. We have negotiated arms agreements, but the high level of Soviet encoding hides the information needed for their verification. A newly discovered radar facility and a new ICBM raise serious concerns about Soviet compliance with agreements already negotiated. Peace cannot be served by pseudo-arms control. We need reliable, reciprocal reductions. I call upon the Soviet Union today to reduce the tensions it has heaped on the world in the past few weeks and to show a firm commitment to peace by coming to the bargaining table with a new understanding of its obligations. I urge it to match our flexibility if the Soviets sit down at the bargaining table seeking genuine arms reductions, there will be arms reductions. The governments of the West and their people will not be diverted by misinformation and threats. The time has come for the Soviet Union to show proof that it wants arms control in reality, not just in rhetoric. Meaningful arms control agreements between the United States and the Soviet Union would make our world less dangerous. So would a number of confidence-building steps we've already proposed to the Soviet Union. Arms control requires a spirit beyond national, narrow national interests. This spirit is a basic pillar on which the UN was founded. We seek a return to this spirit. A fundamental step would be a true non-alignment of the United Nations. This would signal a return to the true values of the Charter, including the principle of universality. The members of the United Nations must be aligned on the side of justice rather than injustice, peace rather than aggression, human dignity rather than subjugation. Any other alignment is beneath the purpose of this great body and destructive of the harmony that it seeks. What harms the Charter harms peace. 
world condemnation of the Soviets Act gave President Reagan the opportunity to reassure the world body personally. Despite the way international cartoonists had been portraying Reagan as a six-shooter toting cowboy, this is hardly cowboy rhetoric. The United States rejects as false and misleading. The view of the world is divided between the empires of the East and West. We reject it on factual grounds. The United States does not head any block of subservient nations, nor do we desire to. What is called the West is a free alliance of governments, most of whom are democratic, and all of whom greatly value their independence. What is called the East is an empire directed from the center, which is Moscow. The United States today, as in the past, is a champion of freedom and self-determination for all people. We welcome diversity. We support the right of all nations to define and pursue their national goals. We respect their decisions and their sovereignty, asking only that they respect the decisions and sovereignty of others. Just look at the world over the last 30 years and then decide for yourself whether the United States or the Soviet Union has pursued an expansionist policy. Today, the United States contributes to peace by supporting collective efforts by the international community. We give our unwavering support to the peacekeeping efforts of this body as well as other multilateral peacekeeping efforts around the world. The UN has a proud history of promoting conciliation and helping keep the peace. Today, UN peacekeeping forces or observers are present in Cyprus and Kashmir, on the Golan Heights and in Lebanon. In addition to our encouragement of international diplomacy, the United States recognizes its responsibilities to use its own influence for peace. From the days when Theodore Roosevelt mediated the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, we have a long and honorable tradition of mediating or damping conflicts and promoting peaceful solutions. In Lebanon, we, along with France, Italy, and the United Kingdom, have worked for a ceasefire for the withdrawal of all external forces and for restoration of Lebanon's sovereignty and territorial integrity. In Chad, we have joined others in supporting the recognized government in the face of external aggression. In Central America, as in Southern Africa, we are seeking to discourage reliance upon force and to construct a framework for peaceful negotiations. We support a policy to disengage the major powers from third world conflict. The UN Charter gives an important role to regional organizations in the search for peace. The U.S. efforts in the cause of peace are only one expression of a spirit that also animates others in the world community. The Organization of American States was a pioneer in regional security efforts. In Central America, the members of the Contadora Group are striving to lay a foundation for peaceful resolution of that region's problems. In East Asia, the Asian countries have built a framework for peaceful political and economic cooperation that has greatly strengthened the prospects for landing lasting peace in their region. In Africa, organizations such as the Economic Community of West African States are being forged to provide practical structures in the struggle to realize Africa's potential. From the beginning, our hope for the United Nations has been that it would reflect the international community at its best. The UN at its best can help us transcend fear and violence. 
and can act as an enormous force for peace and prosperity. Working together, we can combat international lawlessness and promote human dignity. If the governments represented in this chamber want peace as genuinely as their peoples do, we shall find it. We can do so by reasserting the moral authority of the United Nations. In recent weeks, the moral outrage of the world seems to have reawakened. Out of the billions of people who inhabit this planet, why, some might ask, should the death of several hundred shake the world so profoundly? Why should the death of a mother flying toward a reunion with her family or the death of a scholar heading toward new pursuits of knowledge matter so deeply? Why are nations who lost no citizens in the tragedy so angry? The reason rests on our assumptions about civilized life and the search for peace. The confidence that allows a mother or a scholar to travel to Asia or Africa or Europe or anywhere else on this planet may be only a small victory in humanity's struggle for peace. Yet what is peace if not the sum of such small victories? Each stride for peace and every small victory are important for the journey toward a larger and lasting peace. We have made progress. We've avoided another world war. We've seen an end to the traditional colonial era and the birth of a hundred newly sovereign nations. Even though development remains a formidable challenge, we've witnessed remarkable economic growth and industrialized among the industrialized and the developing nations. The United Nations and its affiliates have made important contributions to the quality of life on this planet, such as directly saving countless lives through its refugee and emergency relief programs. These broad achievements, however, have been overshadowed by the problems that weigh so heavily upon us. The problems are old, but it is not too late to commit ourselves to a new beginning, a beginning fresh with the ideals of the UN Charter. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast, featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.